Hey everybody, uh, welcome to We Make the Pod by Talking. Uh, this is one of your co-hosts, Kashi. Uh, check us out on SoundCloud, uh, Anchor, and Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to email us at wemakethepodbytalking at gmail.com. And uh, today uh, we have two guests, and I have my co-host, Carlos. And Carlos, I don't know, you want you want to just go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm Carlos. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm a recent uh, PhD recipient. Um, I studied linguistics at University of Chicago, currently unaffiliated. And today's topic is going to be focused on the experiences of Muslim American women. And uh, we have uh, Aliyah and Ziba. And um, whoever would like to go, f- go first, y'all can go ahead and just introduce yourself. Uh, just share anything you want the listeners to know. Oh, sure. Um, my name's Aliyah. Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also a professor at Cal State LA um, for the graduate program there. And um, I pretty much bounce around from school-based practices, school-based therapy, and um, private practice. And I specifically have a passion for um, trauma therapy and just uh, mental health in schools. So that's me. Um, hi everyone, my name is Ziba. I unfortunately am not a therapist or an academic, um, but currently what I do is I manage a portfolio of retail stores for my family's company up in Toronto. So we're Canada-wide and it has me moving around a little bit, not too much, just a bit. Awesome. awesome. We got a few folks from uh, different like uh, sectors and different areas. Um, the first question is just going to be very general, and then we can expand on it later. Uh, what has been your experience as a Muslim American woman um, in the States? And I know, Ziba, for you, you've been in Canada and the United States. Uh, just like what has been your general experience, maybe like starting from like childhood to adult, and then uh, we can kind of expand on it later. Sure. Um, I know. Well, so there is certainly a difference in the U.S. and in Canada. I can tell you only from personal experience that in the U.S., I think people are a little bit more resistant to wanting to understand nuance that comes with being Muslim, right? And one of the, one of the biggest things in being a Muslim is just like any other religion, it's not a monolith. A Muslim is not a Muslim is not a Muslim, right? And I'm sure Aliyah can speak to this. Um, in Canada, what I've experienced is people generally seem uh, just to touch more in the know that, okay, well, what kind of a Muslim are you is something that I've heard before when I explain like, okay, yeah, I'm Muslim. And then they say, oh, what kind? That's not a response that I've gotten in the U.S., at least not, not one that I can recall. So I don't know if it's the same for Aaliyah. Oh, no, that's, that's very interesting that you even get that question. That just means they're knowledgeable enough to know that there is difference. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I heard there was a very good uh, Muslim community or multiple good mis- Muslim communities um, in Canada. Yeah. yeah, we like to think ourselves as good enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, so I know that um, in Canada anyway, Ismailis who are uh, Shia Muslim, I don't know, maybe I'll backtrack a bit just to say that Muslims are generally broken down into two sects. Generally, um, there's the Sunni and the Shia. Sunnis are the majority and Shia are the minority. 
So within that minority, there are um, schisms that had happened. So we have a whole, you know, host of this um, Shia Muslims. So one of them is Ismaili Muslims. I happen to be an Ismaili. And Ismailis have a very special relationship with Canada in particular. Um, and this has to do with Idi Amin in Uganda in the 70s, I believe. So there were lots of Ismailis in Uganda. And so when Idi Amin came to power, um, his slogan was Uganda for Ugandans. And so Ismailis lost a lot of businesses. They were basically had to flee. They became refugees. At that time, um, it was Pierre Trudeau, who was the prime minister. And he and the Imam of the Ismailis, who was the Aga Khan, they came up with um, an understanding where Ismaili refugees could come to Canada to seek um, citizenship. And so that's why Ismailis have a special relationship with this country. And that's, so yeah, there are lots of Ismailis there. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that, because I didn't even know that. <laughs> I was not aware. Yeah, are you okay if I, I go next? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's, what is right your now? experience? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that it's so vague because, it's, like, do you want me to give the answer of like what's my experience um, within the Muslim community in America or outside of it? Like, those are very two very different um, experiences. Um, but I guess uh, it's been an interesting one. I know that I'm more privileged in the sense that I um, can pass as someone who is not Muslim. So a lot of people can uh, assume that I'm like Latina or like Italian or Armenian or, you know, all kinds of situations actually that are not um, at all either Middle Eastern or Muslim. Um, and uh, because I don't wear a headscarf, I'm also, I also have privilege with that. Um, so I think pre 9-11, it wasn't really, like, I don't think I've really noticed anything in particular that was very, um, racist or prejudiced towards myself, but, um, or the population in general. I was also, I was also like nine or eight when it happened. So, um, but definitely after, um, a lot of comments, um, from classmates, I was really quiet. So again, I had a situation or I was in a kind of a predicament where like I would pass or like nobody would really pay attention to me. So um, I didn't get it as bad as I know some of my friends or family have. Um, again, I also have a name that's very, um, again, like passing for American or Latina. Um, so yeah, I think I've Otherwise, like if it wasn't for my support system, I think I would have had a worse experience. Um, but I think the toughest part of the experience is juggling both identities and feeling like you can't really, like damned if you're doing, damned if you're done. Just either way, in any, any aspect of your life, work, um, personal, dating, all of it. Like there's no winning with anyone. So you have to just be really sure about your like what you want to balance and how you want, want to identify with both so that's that's my my vague general answer it's a struggle <laughs> it's a struggle and i'm i get i'm i have a lot of privilege with that so yeah thanks for bringing that up um i remember 9 11 too vaguely i was in high school at that time and we 
the the community where I grew up is mainly Latino and like Southeast Asians. We didn't really we had like I know we had like a Muslim family. One of my friends was Muslim. And I remember our high school teacher was very conservative. And she would always talk after the 9-11 happened, you know, she she would say like, oh, you know, those bad Muslim people like, you know, invading our country and like, you know, attacking the Twin Towers. Like we need to fight back and, uh, you know, get back at them. And then my friend in class, he was just kind of like, uh, you know, he raised his hand. He's like, uh, miss, uh, you know that I'm Muslim. And, and then the teacher was just like, uh, uh, well, you know, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the other Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the school didn't necessarily have a good foundation for like an addressing those kind of issues. I know one thing that one of the admin did I thought was kind of cool was that uh, he brought that student who was Muslim, my friend, into the office and uh, just sat down with them and said, um, kind of looked them in the eye and said, uh, hey, if you face any kind of harassment uh, based on your religion, I want you to tell me or I want you to let me know so we can whatever we can do to kind of uh, protect you or like help, help you make, make you feel safe. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, our school had at least one person that was kind of in the mindset. And then uh, my next question kind of goes along with uh, what you mentioned, Aaliyah. You kind of touched upon it a little bit. Like, how has your experience in the schools been? Like, specifically, like, K through 12, and maybe a little bit of college, if you want to talk about that. And, like, what do you think are the needs for, like, the public education system to address uh, the issues that the Muslim students face? Um, When you're asking about my experiences as a student, right? Like, growing up within. Yeah, so that was really interesting because I grew up in a community that was very white. So I don't, I didn't have much representation. A lot of my family was in a lower SES. So they were either in like highly Latina or Latinx communities, or um, they were in like within communities that are Muslim or Arab. And we were just so far away. (laughs) So um, we're out here in Long Beach, which is more, uh, you know, it's more diverse now, but you know, um, growing up, yeah, I didn't have that. I did go to Arabic schools, so, um, which also, like, which also crossed with Islamic schools, so that, um, was every Saturday, so I'd go to, we, I'd go to school six out of seven days a week, um, and unfortunately, because those schools were not very established, um, they were very, pretty much like, you know, whoever's willing to teach me kind of thing, it's almost like a tutor, um, it wasn't like the best representation of uh, like either the religion or even like learning Arabic. (laughs) I think they got their point across with like learning the alphabet and some of the basics, but um, pretty much I didn't really have a community other than my family um, that felt like represented me. Um, So definitely going up and I think I had like one or two Muslims at my school. And so our families knew each other, but we also were part of different cultures and we practiced differently. Um, Not that that really made a difference within us because we still grew up as friends and we still had said hi, but it was just like still feeling like you don't belong, you know? Um, And then it wasn't until college where I actually joined a club called the Muslim Student Association. Um, (laughs) they They get a lot of crap for, you know, just within the community about just, I don't know, being out there and doing things. I don't know. I felt like it was a good choice for me. I liked it. It really brought me to um, the roots of my spirituality and um, practicing. And so college, I went to Cal State Long Beach. So college gave me a better community 
Um, but I also had to go out and seek that community. And I know my parents tried really hard to give me that when I was growing up, but again, it was really just based on family. So um, I think what schools need to do is, uh, I'm sure there was a lot more, probably a lot more Muslim students than I may have realized at the time, but it's not really talked about. I mean, we talked about like um, Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and we talked about other, er for like what, five minutes, you know? <laughs> so even like the other religions um, or cultures that got some kind of fame were like the five, the typical like five seconds of fame. Um, so I think it's just putting more effort in diversifying our curriculum. Um, I recently worked at, um, in the Garden Grove Unified School District, which has a big Muslim community there. Um, and I really appreciated one of the fifth grade teachers. Um, she teaches history, world history. I think that's like starting the introduction of history. So she made a very, she, it, she made it her goal. I mean, like with fiery passion to make sure to include like Muslim and like Middle Eastern and South Asian curriculum. Like she was like, we are not teaching our students about their like history. And so we accept that we expect them to take on um, the pride and joy and crap of our of our American history, but we don't also teach them the truth about the world version of it, the actual international truth, not just the American exceptionalism piece, you know? So I appreciated that. And I think that she is just a leader. Like that's what we need. We need more of that. And it's unfortunate that I can pick her out, out of a crowd. Like it should be the opposite, you know, but that's what we need is teachers who are aware um, and are, are taking the power within their classroom to change it, despite what, whether, whether or not the district encourages you to, to do that or not. Um, but I, I appreciated that. So that's, I think that's what we need more of. That's actually, that's really interesting. I, um, I'd be more interested to hear more about your MSA experience. Um, and I'd also be more interested to hear about, well, your cultural background, Aliyah, and I don't know if that's something you want to share or not. Yeah, I'm Palestinian. So I okay. get I get another layer of prejudice there. <laughs> so then, and I think Palestinians tend to be Sunni for the most part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So are you, do you identify as, do you practice? I do identify as Sunni. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay, that just helps me put things into like, okay, this makes a little bit, it gives me a little bit more background. Yeah. Because the reason I say that is because um, I love how you pointed out that MSAs are such a different experience for different people. Mm -hmm. And I think um, depending on which school you go to, what neighborhood you grow up in, uh, your experience can also be very different based on the demographic that's there, right? Yeah, so again, yeah. coming back to this idea of a Muslim is not a Muslim is not a Muslim. It's, it's that in school, in, as part of the curriculum, you'll often get sort of like a very poor bird's eye view of what Islam is. Yeah. And one thing that I see again and again and again is this idea of the five pillars of Islam. I don't know, Takashi and Carlos, if you're familiar with that, but generally I went to a public school in uh, just outside of Chicago. So, and I grew up in a community that was very diverse. Like it, it was wonderful, but even with that in mind and as liberal and as um, inclusive as the teachers tried to make the curriculum, it was hard to get away from the sort of, you know, bird's eye view of Islam and okay, this is Islam and that's it. You 
just like you said, you talk about Kwanzaa a little bit and you talk about, you know, the other holidays a bit, but when it came to Islam, especially in that time, right? It, yeah. it was, it was a weird topic to touch on. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I think that's, that's very interesting. Um, and I'd like to hear more about your MSA experience. And did you find that in the MSAs, the demographic was the same as, uh, like the demographic of students, and by that I mean culturally? Yeah, so um, really quick too, before I jump into MSA, um, I like that you brought up the experience that you had, because for me, um, in in high school, it was like, not even mentioned, honestly. I had a few teachers who were like, when we'd go around the class and I'd share where I'm from, I would say Palestine. I had one teacher who was like, what, what, what? And would not recognize that I was Palestinian. It was so, it was so traumatizing. I was so embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. Um, And then I had another teacher who, my psychology teacher, by the way, um, I was in 11th grade. And he was talking about my best friend was in class. She will never, like, she won't ever forget it. She's like, I hate him, hate that he did that. Um, but we were in class and he was talking about, I don't know, some psychology of fear, right? And he was like, you know, even if I'm not a judgmental person, a racist person, I'm, I'm still going to be at the airport. If I see a Muslim person, I'm still going to be, and he made like a nervous face. And so I'm sitting here like, hello me hello hi and like and then I was tokenized too in, in class so it was like so bad um it was all, like also in my AP government class I was used as like the example and there were things that like hello I'm still I'm an AP government I'm still learning so I don't know anything like I don't know much I'm still learning too about the politics and I also only hear one one side of the politics or I'm so busy with school I don't watch the news you know so it was like well, what are your, what are your people? It was very like a lot of microaggressions. What do your people think about this? Um, so going to college and going to MSA was a lot. I went to Long Beach, so we're really diverse. Um, the thing I don't like about MSAs is often, actually, this isn't really an MS, this is more of a systemic thing that leaks into MSAs, but the thing that I don't approve of, and I have a lot of Daisy friends who, um, and South Asian friends, who, um, you know, I've spoken to about this, it's really difficult they, that a lot of our spaces are Arab dominated. Um, and that's not, okay, like that's our own version of racism that we need to address. Um, so, you know, like halakas are, um, ha- like halakas, any religious events are really led by like, well, we're more likely to choose an Arab person than we are um, Daisy or South Asian. So something that I appreciate about my MSA is even though we had this issue, and we, we did, t- at least when I was there, it was discussed. But I also like that my MSA was half, um, it was really diversified. Like there was some um, Black students, there was some Sudanese, there were some Desi, South Asian, Arab. And um, it, was, it was nice because I got to experience that and understand that like I would never have really actually um, recognized the colorism or racism in our community had it not been for that experience, which is really sad. That says a lot about how our families are not aware of that either, right? I mean, like, it's not like any other culture was really negatively talked about, um, but they weren't talked about at all either. So yeah, thankfully in the time that I went to, because it depends on the cohort of students that are there, um, but we, 
we struggled with certain things like gender relations and like some of us were a little too some of us took religion like by the book versus like spirit of the law they were more like letter of the law versus spirit of the law so you're gonna laugh I'm, I was actually president <laughs> so I know not a lot of people think that they um you know usually presidents either the one that was before me was male um, and then the female presidents were always women that wore like headscarves. So I was the first one of, I think the first, um, in the history of that MSA to be, uh, non like presenting Muslim. Um, and that was an honor, but also came with a lot of struggle. Um, it came with people feeling like they can question you and also question parts of your life that are none of their business. Um, but that also just comes with the community and the culture, not just MSA. Yeah. So um, it's a lot, but I knew that within my position, um, it was important for me to talk about these things. So a lot of our stuff, the one thing I like really get bugged by in our communities that we keep talking about very typical subjects, right? Even in the mosque or outside the mosque, like whatever the community event is or whatever the lecture or the sermon is for that week or month or whatever, it's always around very typical subjects like gender relations or like marriage or, and it's like, there are literally, even within those topics, so much more things we need to be discussing, like racism, like domestic violence, like, um, not that that's an issue specific to the Muslim community, but like LGBTQ plus Muslims, you know, like I, like, we just don't talk about things that like we're, I feel like we're behind. <laughs> um, I think that uh, the upcoming generation, including mine and a few others are doing better with mental health. Um, like we definitely need to talk about mental health. I think imams are making a point to talk more about that. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of my college experience was learning and learning about cultures that come with religion and then also learning about how how it's practiced differently. So most of us were Sunni in our MSA um, and we needed to diversify that and talk about other things. And of course there's one or two people who disagree with that. So I was, um, I don't know, I guess you have to interview other people, but from what I heard, I was a very, um, <laughs> uh, there was a lot of, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I was almost like a rebel president, essentially, because I was like bringing in things that were not typical. And I also brought in imams um, who aligned with <laughs> those things and like would talk about those things. So it was it was awesome. But there was struggle with it. Um, you know, first they they mock you and then they join you. Right. So um, it was it was hard. to. I didn't even realize like that was a form of leadership for me. Um, I just didn't realize it because I was like, yeah, we just need to do this. Uh, so there's a lot of growth in that, but there's still a lot more to be done. And it really does depend on the cohort of students that are there at the time and the support that we get from the university. Um, it's changed. It's really changed. So I don't even know what the cohort of students are like now. I try to keep up, but it's, it's difficult. So I know UCLA was more, um, I worked with different ones on the West side. And uh, it's just different. Everyone has a different culture. It's so funny. I know UCLA was also um, either as diverse or more diverse than us. Um, and they were better. They, I felt like they were always like two steps forward. 
they just they just were and I think it's literally because they're UCLA and they have like really good resources so um it's really it's really interesting to see the difference so I I, you touched on so many things but I just the first thing I would say is if I had AP Gov and psych teachers like you did I might be a trauma counselor too because that's ridiculous but I think the second thing is it's so interesting to me that you said most of the demographic of your MSA was Arab, whereas where I grew up, it was a lot of Indian Pakistanis who were running the MSA. And so there, so then we had sort of the very opposite situation that you had, mm-hmm. where it was usually one of the Indian or Pakistani um, students. And if it was a woman, she would usually be like, I don't, it was vice president or treasurer. Yeah. And it was always yeah. some kind of which is what I was for years before they nominated me. They nominated me, by the way. I didn't choose to run for president. I was like, I don't want this. And they were like, we have no one else. <laughs> so. So, so there was a lot of that. And then it was always, like you touched on, it's like someone who's Muslim presenting. So for women specifically, you got to cover it up. We actually, I'll tell you a funny story. We had, an, uh, we had a speaker at our MSA who came in and gave us the example of, um, I don't, I don't know if this is a famous example or what, of women being like lollipops without wrappers if they're not wearing a hijab. Oh, wow. For somebody who has hair like mine, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to take in. Wow. But I, I think the other thing is because at that age, you're so impressionable. So I, I was part of an MSA in high school and then in university as well. Oh, cool. And you had one of those MSAs. Nice. So I... <laughs> So this particular story is part of the high school MSA. Now what's interesting is for our MSA, I don't know if it works like this in other high schools. Takashi, you said you're an educator. I don't know if it's in the high school system or... Um, like the schools I worked at, we don't really have a large Muslim population, mm-hmm. uh, but I know that they are MS- MSAs do exist when there is a, a large enough community Kind of the same thing with like Chicano organizations, black organizations, Asian organizations. So, so, our, so the MSA, so the way that the club system worked at our high school is you had to have a sponsor, like a teacher had to sponsor the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and only if that was the case, then you could have meetings and it could be an official thing you could join. So I believe our teachers, maybe like the one or two Muslim substitute teachers that were at, at the high school, something like that, were the sponsors of the club. So we were able to have an MSA. What's interesting is the MSA exec board would make calls on who would come to speak and all of that. But it seemed like there was very little vetting from the teachers who were kind of sponsoring these clubs. Mm -hmm. So when you have, when you let um, 17, 18 year olds who maybe themselves haven't had the time to understand, you know, the richness of the theology Right. Mm-hmm. The diversity within Islam, the political implications, historical implications, and they're allowed to just call whatever speaker they want, maybe like, you know, their neighbor's sister's cousin, who's an imam somewhere, or read a couple books, and then you have those people coming in and speaking to very impressionable kids. It's a weird situation sometimes. And you end up with a lot of these lollipop examples. Yeah. And so I think... I think that's very interesting insofar as MSA and the school system goes. I'm not connected to curriculum anyway. Yeah. So socially, that was something interesting. And then when I got to university, it was a lot of the same, which was sort of the domination of um, 
one way to practice Islam and sort of the imposition of that. And then there are a lot of questions that come out of that to be like, who's a good Muslim? And what do good Muslims look like? And um, even the conversation we would have around Muslim ethics, those conversations are, can only be shaped in part by your culture, right? And it, so the demographic of the MSA played a big role in that. Right. So we I think- a, mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, it just reminds me like we had a prayer room. Um, it's called the meditation room and it's open to everyone. But um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we had it because it was very important, but obviously it's open to everyone. But we also, I did not like that. It's, it's like a pro and con, you know, pro is like, we're using it and we have this space and that's amazing because we deserve that space, but so does everyone else. And we would like dominate it. And so when people saw us praying in a group, um, you know, our prayers take like, you know, five, 10 minutes, what it, depending on which prayer and um, it's not like we're in there all day, but then it turned into like times when we weren't praying, we would be in the meditation room hanging out. And like, it was almost like dominating that space and not allowing. So it was like the, the oppressed became the oppressor, you know, which is not, it's not, I mean, it wasn't that severe, but it was, you know, comments that were made and like not respecting the space as we wanted uh, people to respect it for us. And so it's like little things that you're right. It comes from like ethics where it's just like, you can tell whose family or experiences, maybe not just family, but like whose experiences were diversified slash discussed. Um, and you can tell whose like background again, or experiences were literally so freaking narrow that they did not make space for others. Um, so that's normally where the clash would happen. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, it's quite interesting. Um, and I was going to add to the fact, you know, it doesn't change. Like, yeah, we also brought it, we could bring in any speakers we wanted. There was no, our advisor was really well involved, but, um, at the end of the day, she just felt like one, she wasn't, um, um, she didn't identify as Muslim. So, you know, if she's not Muslim, she's not going to be like, no, the speaker is not okay or not. So it really depended on the leadership in that moment. And so I was like, well, if y'all can bring in these like narrow-minded leaders, why can't I bring in someone who's a little more, you know, diversified or, um, yeah, by the way, also, I think right now it's currently flipped. I think it's mostly um, Desi people that are running the, uh, the MSA. So it really does flip. The thing with Long Beach is we're also, um, the thing with Kasi Long Beach is we're also an international school as they like to frame themselves. Um, so they have a, I think they have like a contract or something with, um, like the, like with U, UAE. So we have a lot of people from, yeah. So we have a lot of people from the Middle East who uh, study abroad here. And so, you know, we, not that those were the typical, um, MSA members, but for example, I grew up, I'm in from LA, by the way, in case I haven't mentioned that. <laughs> Um, so LA County, you don't really see a lot of the high schools having MSAs, but Orange County, you do. Um, so a lot of uh, my MSA peeps grew up in Orange County, and uh, they had that experience. Whereas I'm like learning things from the get. Like I knew how to pray, I knew like some of the basic things, but I've never been part of a, a halakha. Which, by the way, is um, how would you explain that? 
that's like a almost like a religious it's like kind of like bible study but <laughs> but for it's like yeah I, I don't know if you have a better way to describe it but I'm blanking out right now I actually you're gonna have to excuse my ignorance because I don't know we never I don't know if I don't remember if we used to call them holocaust the meeting you know, that's, again that's an arab word that's an arab word that's Arabic. so it's like again like even the things that we label were dominated by arabs so um from my understanding it was a moment for us to really study the theology of the quran um okay. so, take, so it's literally I, I would assume it's like bible study where you would take a verse or um a surah and you would um you would read it out loud but also you would interpret it and um learn like what the actual context of it is and this was happening in your msa yeah we would try so different people would try to take the lead on that to make it more consistent yeah i don't remember there being anything like that at our msa i think our msa ended up being at least in high school ended up being a lot more of just like speakers coming in and bake sales for yeah. what at that time, I, I don't know. Some, some cause, I'm not sure which one. Yeah. But I think, I think the other thing that, Takashi, sorry, you were asking about uh, growing up in the school system, Muslim in, in the school system. So I can tell you something else that I found a bit interesting is, uh, like we were talking about the curriculum, that it's, that one, there, it's sort of a two-pronged thing, right? One, you have educators who generally, I'm sure, are uncomfortable with talking about a religion that they don't really know. Well, an educator who maybe is not like that AP Gov teacher, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't want to make him uncomfortable. But the other thing then is you also have um, just even for the educators then, it's like you're not PhDs in Islamic studies, right? So how far are you going to chase a nuance? So I think it's difficult to draw that line between what is, um, what's considered inclusive enough and what's considered too broad and too generalizing, you know. Which again is a systemic issue. Like for example, I, um, I, so I teach multiculturalism and counseling. And one of the things that I adopted from um, a professor of mine is power sharing in the classroom. And I think that this just goes with any classroom in America on any topic. Because the thing is, I tell my students all the time, you can be, uh, you know, I got 100% on my, um, the multiculturalism part of our comprehensive exams. I've gotten awards for working with different communities, uh, been recognized for that kind of work. I didn't mean to go out to do that work. I was just doing my job as a counselor. But again, you could be like this, you know, highly, I don't know, recognized person who's a professor at a university teaching at a graduate level of multiculturalism and still not know everything. So I'm not going to know everything about your culture. You also have to let me know and let us know. So most of my class is discussion-based and it shouldn't be like, oh, I'm teaching you about these cultures. It's I'm opening the path for you to learn about these cultures. That's what teaching is. That's what education is. So if that was the case in I don't know, elementary school, third grade, that's pretty much what that like teacher was doing. I know that was more fifth grade, but like, it's all about opening the conversation. And so as people are, you know, as we normalize opening those discussions, so I did um, circles in the morning um, called Mindful Mornings at the elementary school I worked at last year. 
And, um, you know, we, sometimes we would talk about culture. Sometimes we'd talk about other things, but again, it's opening that, opening that pathway to discuss what they want to discuss and identify how they want to identify. And from a young age, we don't really start that power sharing in the classroom because we need structure, right? But you don't have to sacrifice discussion or education for, um, you know, structure. Like you can have both. You can have both. I have uh, the structure is the circle and we take turns talking and we have group rules or we have circle rules that we adopted, by the way, the circle, the circle process, for those of you that don't know, is adopted, adopted by Native Americans. Um, so it's usually called like council circle, whatever, um, you know, you, there's lots of names for it, different practices for it comes from, uh, also is connected to restorative justice practice. Um, so that's something that I like to bring into classrooms because it is about opening discussion. So again, I could be sitting next to a Palestinian American Muslim who grew up in the same community as me, but has wildly different experiences of being a Muslim in America or being um, an Arab American. You know, it's just, it really just depends on family, on environment, on um, the resources, uh, so SES, socioeconomic status. So it really depends. So that's something I like to remind my students is uh, because a lot of them are like, I have to be a culturally competent counselor. And I'm like, uh, to be a culturally competent counselor means to ask questions. Because again, I can be, I don't, I, and I'll sit across even my Middle Eastern clients and let them know just because we both speak Arabic doesn't mean we have the same words for things. So I usually have a translator in my sessions anyways, because my dialect is different. I come from a poorer part of Palestine. So a lot of my Palestinian friends, our dialect, we're extremely different. That comes with a different culture and a different stigma, <laughs> actually, um, because I, I de I'm, I'm identifying myself from a part of Palestine where I'm like from a lower SES. So it's really interesting. There's just a lot. And so all, all I think we need to do is open, just open the path. And it's all about asking those open-ended questions and really allowing people to narrate and share their experiences, even at a young age, because those kids can really share. They can really talk about a lot of things and they understand a lot of things. And it's really a beautiful thing to see at an early age, but especially even like into um, young adulthood. No, I, I don't work with kids, just kids who come to buy things. So sorry, yeah. <laughs> I have no insight on children in that way. But. but even like listening to each other. So a lot of times it was like, like within our MSA, I know we keep coming back to MSA. This is not everything in the Muslim culture, but um, like even within the MSA it was like having a discussion, like let's just open it up. And a lot of times it was like, you're the president. You should just tell us what to do. And it's like, no, that's not the I mean over things like hey should we do red balloons for this event or green balloons like sure whatever I don't know but if we're talking about like what speakers would you like what topics do you need to discuss that's an everyone point of view that's an everyone situation so I I just think about like what would it have been like for you had you had a teacher who knew how to run circles or even just use that tool whether or not they were Muslim and just open up the discussion for you to all learn communication skills or to hone communication skills to where you're even opening to building the ethics and the skills needed to have these discussions so that it is more so that we can move forward and build more inclusive environments within our community for other people. Oh, I, I kind of wanted to 
I just I wanted to continue with that with that question, but directed at Ziba. Uh, Ziba, how was how was your experience been uh, through the U.S. education system? As like, I mean, have you experienced any similar microaggressions that Alia has has talked about? Any beyond the MSA experiences? Is there anything else uh, that you might have confronted? Sure. So actually, when nine eleven happened. Um, I used to live in Orlando, Florida, in a community that was very white. Um, and we might have been, actually, I think I was the only uh, Muslim person there. There were some, there were some uh, Latino students, but by and large, it was a white, white school. It must have been like an elementary school. Um, and so when 9-11 happened, you could almost feel like it's just, it's different. It's different. And it may sound like a cliche answer. We had 9-11 changed a lot of things, but I think at the time, especially in that, in that particular region of the country um, where nationalism is well and alive, uh, you do feel that there is a little bit of a change. Um, so we had moved from Chicago to Orlando when 9-11 happened. Um, it got a little bit too tense. So we moved back to Chicago where we knew it was like the community was different and community um, was very important at that time. It became even more important than it, it would have been otherwise. So um, coming back to Chicago, I think the experience was different in that it wasn't as tense, but there is a general air of like ignorance around a lot of what Islam is. Um, and I think the other thing is because the media had sensationalized things so much, uh, that I think it, had it been any other community, I think they might have faced the same thing, which is just being painted in broad strokes, right? It's like, oh, Muslims are this and they're that. So the way that we were raised, um, just like Aliyah, I'm not maybe Muslim presenting in that I don't wear a hijab. Uh, I don't necessarily practice the whole modest clothing thing. Maybe to my own detriment, I don't know. Uh, but I think that in that, it's like you would hear people have conversations that they may not otherwise have around you, especially people who are authority figures, right? Like teachers. Teachers could um, afford to be a little bit more cavalier with their sentiments on what was going on if they didn't know that you were Muslim. So there was that. Uh, but I think... Like Aliyah pointed out, there is privilege in not being Muslim presenting, right? And that you're not going to be singled out to be like, oh, this person's Muslim. Now tell us more about what happened. It's not going to be like that. Or at least it wasn't for me. I don't know if it was like that for somebody else. Um, that, that was more or less it. But I can't, I, I don't really remember it being, I don't really remember it ever being to a point where I felt like I was danger of some sort or anything like that and maybe that's just because I was lucky and was that's about it it's kind of boring but another comment um I'm sorry to bring up MSA again but, but I remember in undergrad um uh I was part of this leadership for this uh people of color collective like we had different like people of color organizations and uh the, the MSA Muslim American Student Association wanted to also participate in the group 
but there was a conflict with the queer people of color group and the MSA because of, I guess, different, I guess you could say ideologies because uh, like certain folks in MSA were very, like kind of like what you said earlier about like being very strict to the Quran or to the, you know, to the, the scripture or the text while others are a bit more free and, you know, they don't like abide everything by it, right? And certain people and queer people of color felt like hurt by some of the statements that were being made. And I remember we had a presenter that was a, a queer Muslim of color and he was doing his presentation and he, you know, one of the folks, I guess there were a few, few men from MSA like asking questions that was directly from the text and they, they got into a very heated argument. And I, I don't know, I just felt like it, it's a very uh, touchy subject at least during that time. But I mean, it, it sounds like the generation obviously is changing and there's different outlooks in the community. And I know it's not a monolith and people have different points of view, but I just kind of want to get your thoughts about like the LGBT issues in the Muslim community. And how do you think it has been like shifting over the years? I know you can't see our faces, but uh, <laughs> we're both like super embarrassed here. We're like, oh God, oh. we're like cringing, listening to your story. Um, yeah. Uh, dang. I just, it's really unfortunate that that's, um, that's a thing that happens. Yeah, it is. We don't talk about, unfortunately, it's not talked about in mosques. I think they're pushing for it currently to happen. Um, I was invited to an Islamic school maybe a couple years ago when I was in the program. It was like my second year. Uh, sorry, Takashi and I went to the same, we were in the same program. <laughs> different cohorts, but same program. Um, so one of the things was I'm really known for my like groups and workshops and things like that. So uh, one of the Islamic schools had an issue with bullying where a student, it led a student to want to die by suicide. Thankfully she's okay, but it was like comments made on social media, cyberbullying was a mess. So um, they invited me to do bullying, a bullying workshop. And actually one of the kids, um, and I was super, super proud because oftentimes Islamic schools are also mixed with mosques. So they're either like literally physically held in a mosque or attached to one. Um, so this one was one of those. It was like uh, attached to a mosque where they built in a mosque. I'm trying to remember the infrastructure, but either way, the association was there. So um, I'm really proud of this one kid at the end of my bullying workshop who asked about like what happens when a person is gay and like the Quran says this and that. And I'm like, listen, there are a lot of things in the Quran that are, that were written in a certain time. So a lot of people, we need to study it now. Like we need to study it in context and you'll find some scholars that do this. So, you know, issues on like things on marriage. And this is a, by the way, it's not just the LGBT part. Like there's issues with, in my opinion, there's issues with conceptualizing the Quran within its context. So some people, again, literally take the verse and apply it. And I'm like, mm. like, I remember having um, a discussion slash debate with one of the men in MSA who were like talking about like women and things like that. And I'm like, that's funny that you always bring up this, but you don't bring up um, that the Quran actually gives like very specific directions on like women's sexual health and their rights and like, you know, having to arouse a woman before even uh, being like sexually involved with them. And like, you know, the, the are part of that relationship, but that's not discussed ever. And he was like, 
And this is a dude who like thinks he memorized the Quran like back and forth. And I was like, you know, so um, it's, it, it, we have a problem definitely. And this is very similar to other religions, uh, especially the monotheist, mono, monolithic religions where they'll take a verse and they'll throw it in your face, depending on what the agenda is. Um, so my favorite thing to do is to take, take another verse and, and debate. I don't usually put my energy towards that anymore. But um, so one of the things that I discussed in that workshop with all the teachers there, which is funny because they're from, they're like, I like to call them the Karens of the Muslim community. Um, so <laughs> we have them. Let's just be honest. We have them. So, um, you know, with all of them there and, you know, it's an older generation. So the fact that the kid even said gay was like, <gasps> Like, oh my God, I just, I think back at their faces and I'm, I loved it. I like thrived in that moment. And you know, sometimes I'm a little awkward and like I get nervous and I hesitate, but that was the one, that was the one day I did a workshop and I was like not tripping over any words. I was like, oh yeah, we're going to talk about this today. So we, I pretty much led a discussion. Like, what do you guys think about it? What do you all think about it? I need to stop saying guys, what do you all think about it? Um, and the kids were at first like really hesitant to speak up, but then they're like, well, we're told this, but we're also told that it's not our place to judge. And you know, that like love is love. And like, so they're noticing the contradictions within their own teachings, both in their family and at school. Um, so, you know, I just connected it to, again, the love part of like, why don't we ever talk about those parts, right? So um, connecting it and like honing in on the love and forgiveness. So anytime I do any type of, um, I don't really specialize in faith-based counseling, but anytime I ever connect um, a client's faith, again, with their invitation and permission and have like having them bring that in and they've talked about it and they're okay with talking about it with me, I never initiate, but I allow them to invite me into that space. When I'm invited in that space and even in therapy, just one-on-one -on -one, and a client's like, hey, I you know, I'm feeling guilty about this. I'm just really sad that we don't use religion for, um, for love and forgiveness as often as we should. And so for me, it's all about flipping that script. Um, I, I personally believe that like religions, uh, exist on earth to give us faith. It's just like psychologically, <laughs> um, having a spirituality of any, of any sort, whatever that spirituality is, um, lessens your anxiety, right? Because you're putting it to a higher power of any kind um, and you're taking it off of, you're externalizing it instead of internalizing it, which is very healthy for you. Um, but then there's the part of religion where people or spirituality where people love to play, like love to be fear mongers um, to set structure. But again, we don't have to sacrifice structure for, again, the openness. Like you can be practicing and be loving and be accepting. Um, so like I've met a few um, Muslims that are LGBTQ plus and um, it is difficult because again, I, I mean, did you just hear me? I said, I met, I met a few. I don't even know, like I'm not even familiar with the community. I've tried to find it, but um, it's so hard because it's like, they can't even be out. You know, oftentimes when, um, LGBTQ plus Muslims are out, they're usually really disconnected with the community or from their family. So um, it's just, 
it's definitely something again that I feel like we're behind on. And um, I think our community is catching on to that because we're losing people, we're losing family members, we're losing uh, connections, friends. Um, so it's going to be a big part on like mosques and imams and like religious leaders to really step up and discuss that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you have anything to add. I don't want to. <laughs> no, I, I um, so I can't speak for the entire Ismaili community because we span all across the world, right? You have Ismailis from Central Asia, from the former Soviet Union, um, from Syria, Iran, India, Pakistan, you know, and, and Canada and North America. So I can only speak for a small percentage of those Ismailis. From my own experience, what I've seen is uh, within the Ismaili community, if you are, uh, if you identify as LGBTQ+, that generally, um, at least within social circles, it's not, it's not looked at as like, no, like you're not a good Ismaili, you're not a good Muslim, like we have to shun you. It's, that's not really the experience I've had insofar as I can see right? Because I'm not in their shoes or in any person's shoes who identifies themselves in that way. Um, so that's interesting to me that the whole, like, there's this, this issue. But I would also, the other thing that I, I find interesting is I had read some time ago, I don't know if you're familiar with Layla Ahmed, her work. Layla Ahmed is head of, I think, Islamic studies at Harvard, or she used to be. I think oh, now it's that's huh? interesting. I haven't heard of her. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah, so so she had written a book on and it's quite quite old now and I can't remember. I think it's something about the veil. I can't remember. I'll I'll send a name across if I remember it. Um and in the book she talks about basically politicization of the hijab, right? Of wearing the hijab and how there was a point in time where the the general trend amongst um, American Muslim youth, Muslim women, was to be taking off the hijab. When the, uh, she found that when 9-11 happened, you know, these heated periods where Muslims were, Muslim youth anyway, felt like they were really called on to kind of show who they were and to discuss their own beliefs and practices, that what ended up happening is they ended up being somewhat reactionary and they ended up putting hijab back on not so much as a religious stand, you know, to say like, this is my modesty. I think it's evolved into that now. But at that time, it was very much so a political, um, like a, a political statement to say, yeah, I am Muslim. Like, this is who I am. And so I think it's interesting now where we're in this era of, you know, let's talk about our faith and what that means, where the conversation is a little bit more open and less of like a push to be like, explain yourself. Now, I think, Aliyah, what you're saying is, is true, that we're in a space where people are more welcoming to say, okay, well, let's talk about what your experience has been. I think so now, maybe the tone of the conversation is changing too. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what that does to Muslim women and Muslim youth and where sexuality and gender are concerned, certainly. Right. It definitely depends on the community. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because there are communities that are like, nope, we're not talking about this today or any day, but um, there are that are like, okay, cool. So like you want to come to, you know, the khutbah or sermon on Friday, you know, like they're pretty, they're a little more accepting of it. 
Um, I for sure, after that conversation, because we delved deep into that issue with the fifth graders. And I'm like, for sure, like for sure, I'm not going to get invited back. I got invited back. So it's like, oh, a lot of times it's actually just the fear of like, how do we talk about this? And yet good Muslims. And it's like, dude, it's not like, it's so sad that I feel like sometimes there is sometimes again, depending on the community. And I have seen religious leaders call this out because a lot of times people make Islam or the religion make it seem like it's here for the pious and it's not, it's not like no one here is perfect. Not even religious leaders. Um, so, you know, like it's here as a guidance is it is here as a guidance and it's like what you make of that what you do with that is on you that's your accountability so yeah i'm glad that you said that it is it does it does really depend on the community and the generation um but it's starting and i can't wait to see it evolve i i think it needs to evolve at a faster pace but you know what it's like you know we're taking it i guess we're taking it one step at a time well so i can share a couple of other resources if that's okay yeah. Um, so there is in the Netherlands, I believe there is an imam. His name is Imam Mosin, something or the other. I'm so sorry. I don't. My memory works half the time, so I can look him up. But anyway, he is very interesting in that he is he identifies as LGBTQ, yeah. and he's an imam. And basically, what he's done now is to say that look, this story that exists in the Bible and in the Quran, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's basically reinterpreting it to say that story isn't talking so much about homosexuality as it is about rape and about pedophilia. So that's a very new take because I think in the community for such a long time, that was sort of the basic interpretation, right? That Sodom and Gomorrah is a story of homosexuality and how God ruined the city because, you know, he didn't like homosexuals. And and this imam is saying, well, no, like, let's take, let's take a second look and see what's actually going on there. So I think that that's, that's one thing to look out for. And then the second is, um, I don't know how familiar you are with an organization called Musawa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Musawa is um, all about feminism and Islam. So they have a lot of scholars, Amina Wadud, uh, Ziba Mir Husseini, very cool people. Basically what they do is they're scholars um, and they look to reinterpret a lot of Sharia or a lot of what the Quran says and how even the Quran has been translated, right? Because within the Muslim community, you don't have, they say when you take the Quran and you translate it into any other language, it then becomes an interpretation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for by and large, the Quran's always been translated by men. Yep. Right. And seldom by women, if ever. And at that, Arab men. Right. Right. For for the most part. So I think I think you so what they try to do is they try to take a second look and say, well, look, what is going on here? How is this being interpreted? In what context? By who? In what time period? So I think that's another organization that may be a good resource for the listeners of your podcast if they have more you know, if they have interest in looking that up. Yeah. I'm never going to forget um, in my human sexuality class um, in the counseling program, we learned about how homosexuality 
is looked down upon mainly because of um, penetration being something that's only done to women. And so there's like that hierarchy um, slash dynamic, like power dynamic. And I just think that's like so relevant across the board in like every culture, every religion, how that's like been a thing. And like, even when it comes to things like rape and, um, you know, being like sodomized. So uh, I think there's a lot there that just the general public does not know about. I mean, I was in grad school when I learned about that. So there needs to definitely be more like psychoeducation in general in, in not just our community, but everywhere so that we can actually take these like religions and like take a look and be like, hey, so like what did they actually mean? Because everyone's just doing the best they can at the time that they are living. Like that is just the, that is a matter of fact. So, you know, it's, again, it's like, like you said, like there, we need people that like kind of take a second look. Um, I mean, we don't even talk about um, the issues of, again, like racism that I had brought up before, but when the BLM movement happened earlier this year, I hate calling it a movement because it shouldn't be a movement, but you know, it is what it is. So when, when BLM, um, when the rising of BLM happened, um, a lot of what I appreciated on my social media was seeing a lot of the um, Muslim community call out their own cultural communities, which was awesome. Like, you know, seeing like the South Asian community call out the South Asian like issues with colorism. Um, seeing the Arab community call out issues with like, hey, by the way, we also have a history with slavery. We do. Like we don't, we don't talk about black people who are like in the Middle East, you know, we don't. And so, and I think I love, I love seeing like things about like images of how Jesus or, and of course we don't, we don't have, I literally think that in Islam, we don't have images of prophets because of issues like this, because of issues like racism. And we don't, you know, I mean, we're not allowed to, right? It's like against the religion to. So actually, that's, that's it. See, so this, now you're seeing it in live motion. That <laughs> in, in, I can tell you at least there's a lot of Shia iconography, right? So depending on where you are in the world, for instance, in Iran, they have lots of imagery of oh, Ali, of Hassan and Hussein, of yeah. the prophet. Because this idea of it's not okay to, um, to have images of the prophet it's it's a newer thing is it oh my god yeah and see, that's the limit in my and that's the limit in my experience in education yeah so i i think it's interesting because it's exactly this right so even in schools even in curriculum it's exactly exactly this because who's going to know everything right so, yeah right. sorry go ahead i didn't mean to well shoot actually now that you brought it up it's almost like well did we bring make that a newer thing to erase the racism and erase history you know what i'm saying like so, so what yeah. would those images have depicted then? Sure. You know, if we had kept those images, what would they have depicted? You know, like that's my, that's always my question because there's a lot of like erasing of different histories in mm-hmm. every culture, region, etc. So, so I don't know actually. I don't know if if that historically would tie back to racism. I can't speak to that. Right. But I can tell you that iconography is very much there in in different parts of the Muslim world. And that just speaks to the fact that religions don't exist in a vacuum. And it sounds very cliche. They are shaped and evolve according to their context, according to politics, according to 
even economics of where they are, right? You follow the money trail, you'll find out exactly which caliph was trying to take over what part of the Muslim world, which pope was, you know, kind of nudging which king. Like, that's just, that's just the nature of religions. Mm -hmm. At least I think so. Yeah, thank you for sharing out. I think it was a good point.